Well, this is part four. It's the final message in this series that God has given to me to impart to you, not as a sermon, but as a message. And I'm glad that you're all here, those of you joining us online. And each of these messages have been really dealing with the prophetic word that I believe is applicable to each and every one of us, young and old, close, distant, on fire or cold as ice. God knows you're here, and he wants you to hear this. And that prophetic word is applicable in this year and in the year to come, but to have great expectation and anticipation of faith that mounts up to saying, Lord, I want to hear something I've never heard from you, to do something I've never done for you, and then to see something that I've never seen before that comes from you, not just to impact my life, but the life of others. In this journey, we reflected on individuals, patriarchs like Noah and Moses and Joshua. We know the milieu or the environment in which God would speak to them. Sometimes it was a fiery ordeal in the context of their life. Or maybe it was in the midst of a separation, a death, as we saw with Joshua. But I want to zero in on a woman in the New Testament. And it's not because it's the Christmas season that will be soon upon us, but it's because I felt God said, I want you to share about Mary. Now, in the New Testament, there are six individuals that are referred to as Mary. So you got to zero in on the right one. But this Mary is the one who's spoken about the most and probably the one that everyone knows the best. That's Mary, the mother of Jesus, who had the opportunity as a young girl to hear something she had never heard before to do something that she had never done before, to see something she had never seen before, to hold in her hands and in her arms the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus. So as we reflect on someone like Mary, considering the fact that there are various approaches, and here I don't want to be too intellectual or academic, but there are different approaches to Mary. There is the Roman Catholic path and even the Protestant path. There's a propensity in the Roman Catholic Church to exalt her far beyond what the New Testament teachings give. And in the Protestant Church, sometimes a propensity to belittle her or lower her. I like to stay on the level plane of what Holy Scripture exhorts us to do and look through the biblical lens when it comes to Mary. We know that she had the opportunity of receiving a word from God and then his seed to be deposited into her as the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and then to bring into the world the Savior of the world. We know that in the incarnation is the teaching that Jesus is fully man and fully God, his 100% humanity and his deity. And what happened in the church, and this kind of led the church at one point to get a bit derailed, is they were contending with, in the first three centuries of the church, the first hundred years, the 200, 300 years, that they were dealing with the issue of the humanity and deity of Christ. In the area of theology, it's called Christology, the nature of Christ. And because they were contending with that, and they were addressing the issue of the incarnation, a council, one of many, were formed in 431 AD. It's called the Council of Ephesus. 
In the Council of Ephesus, they were wanting to solidify the doctrinal dogma of the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. So they zeroed in on Mary, and they decided to give her a title that is called Theotokos. Theo, God, tokos, meaning one who bears, so the bearer of God. And the whole point, the whole emphasis of that was to accentuate the deity of Christ. But about three or four hundred years later, they decided to take that title, Theotokos, one who bears God, and give Mary the title Mother of God. That's foreign to the teachings in the New Testament. And her veneration went off the charts, and that was dangerous. But for us, we know that she was an incredible woman of God, ready to surrender and submit to him. And the appropriate title would be the mother of Jesus, and we know Jesus to be fully man, fully God, but not the title mother of God. A misapplication uh, of that theological term Theotokos, one who would bear God. Well, we know that to be the case. Well, when it comes to Mary, realize the very derivation of her name means beloved one, but also it comes out of the Hebrew in the Old Testament. The name is Miriam. It means one who is bitter. and basically reflects her life. She was beloved by God, called by God. She heard something from God through the angel Gabriel that would impact all of us. But she also, according to the old prophet Simeon, a sword was going to go through her heart and through her soul. And so there would be bitterness. There would be deep pain for her as a mother looking upon her son and all of his rejection, persecution, and crucifixion. And so her name was appropriate, beloved, and bitter. But how does this apply to us, for all of us right now? Well, the context of God speaking to her is found in Luke chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27. It says this, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. The virgin's name was Mary. I mean, take note of the fact that two times her virginity is, is focused in on. And then she herself will say it a little later on. Three times in Luke chapter 1 is the emphasis on the fact this is a virgin birth that is about to happen. Liberal theology has bled in at times and dismisses that, but Holy Scripture makes it crystal clear three times over. She's a virgin, a virgin, a virgin, and a miracle is about to happen. Now... This was commonplace, familiar, normal, natural to be engaged, but all of a sudden there was a divine interruption, a divine interruption that altered the routine, the uh, process, or the very plan that was in her life. Now something that was very common, ordinary, familiar, exciting, shifted completely. That was the context. I believe God may want to drive that point in deeply on a personal level to you. God may be speaking to you, and it's kind of a God eruption. It's going to disassemble your life a bit, may shake you up. You may veer a bit off course, but it's not really off course. You're on course, 
your will is getting better in harmony with his. It's an interruption. It's a disturbance. It's not the routine. It's not the familiar. It's not part of the plan. And you wonder with perplexity what's going on. But God is speaking. I don't know how that translates into your life. Pastor, are you saying to me that my job may change? Possibly. My occupation or career? Possibly. Where I live? Possibly. I don't know. I think all of you know I am experiencing that along with Diane, an interruption to our ministry here. But it's God unfolding, an eruption. We're not sure what the plan is. You know, actually, a couple weeks ago, I went to the Lord. I said, God, I'm so laser focused right now and just fulfilling my task as senior pastor and in the midst of the transition to make sure everything is solid and the foundation for the next one that you'll call. But might I ask you, what's your plan for me and Diane? (laughs) And here's what he said. You want to hear it? I think I could give you a window in. He said, Gary, I have a plan. And I was like, yeah? Be secure in that. I heard that. It was almost like an audible voice in my soul. I have a plan. Well, you know what was stirred in my heart. What is it? Because, you know, (laughs) I'm a leader. I plan all the time. (laughs) You know, you... Leadership is kind of two arms is goal setting and problem solving. One's navigating into the future. The other is managing the present. Sometimes you can get so pulled into problem solving that you ignore the goal setting or setting vision. But all of that incorporates planning. And he didn't let me know anything more than that. He wants me to rest on his nature. I shared that with Diane. God's got a plan. What is it? He's got a plan. (laughs) Okay, enough on that. The interruption. Mary heard something in the midst of that. Luke chapter 1 and verse 31 says this. You will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. God was about to overshadow her, deposit into her a seed, God's seed. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, will speak about God's seed. It's a mystery. Of course it is. It's an incredible miracle, but an absolute reality. God did it. She heard something she had never heard before. She had to welcome it, embrace it, let it really settle in, be indelibly written upon her heart. Its application maybe to you and to me is, yeah, in the midst of an interruption, be assured that God is going to speak something to you about what he's about to do. Maybe it will be in general terms initially, not specific, but God is about to place his seed into the womb of your life. And of course, I'm not just addressing women here. I mean it in a very broad, symbolic, but sacred sense. In the womb of your life, I don't care how young you are or how old you are, In the womb of your life, God wants to place the seed of his word. Something is going to be conceived on the inside of you by his voice. 
Yes, it has to be watered and fertilized, exposed to sunlight like any seed so it properly matures and grows. And it might come very small. You're getting an impression, a growing desire, an intuition, a sense. You're trying to filter it and you wonder, is this God's voice or is it mine or others? Am I making it up or is it him? I get that. You're navigating through a process of discovery. It's good. Keep pressing in and pressing on. The promise in John chapter 10 is my sheep will know my voice. You'll know his voice, but you have to press in. And so it might come like a little seed into your womb and you wonder, what's God doing? But take note of Mary's response. She says, well, how will this be since I'm a virgin? That's when she says it. That's the third time as it's recorded in Luke 1. Now, it's not really an invitation for a proof. It's the polar opposite, the antithesis of what Zacharias did. When, when he was told that his wife Elizabeth was going to be with child, he said, basically, if you take it out of the syntax and the structure and the original language, you know, how can I be sure of this? See, it was a question mark about the character, the omnipotence, the power of God when he asked that question. That's why he was punished. He wasn't listening, so he couldn't speak. A lot of times when you don't listen to God, you flap your tongue, but you never speak with authority. Remember they said of Jesus, boy, he's not like the scribes or the Pharisees, the ones who they thought should speak with authority. They said, he speaks with authority. And it's not his intonations or inflections or the volume of his voice. It's the content, the source, the genesis of where it's coming from. He's speaking with authority because Jesus listened to his father and did it. If you listen but really hear the voice of God, really hear it, grab it, you'll speak with authority. But Zacharias didn't because he posed the question about God prove it. I've got to know that you've really got the power to pull off this incredible miracle, this impossible situation of my elderly wife becoming pregnant. But that wasn't how Mary packaged her question. And that's why she's not rebuked or corrected. She's affirmed. Because she was just wanting to know the plan. I'm familiar with that. You're on safe territory. When you say, God, can you articulate the plan? And so in her case, he does say, yes, this is what's going to happen. He speaks through the angel Gabriel. It's recorded in Luke 1 and verse 35. The Holy Spirit, the power of the highest, will overshadow you. Now, anytime I'm reading in the Bible a word that I don't use in the vernacular, it's not part of the colloquial, it's not the everyday conversations that I have, I don't get up and talk to my wife or others about being overshadowed. So I decide I want to find out what is the meaning of that word to be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Sounds mysterious. Anytime you're talking about God, the Holy Spirit, it seems a bit mysterious because he's invisible and it's hard to wrap your arms around spirit. Holy it kind of identifies an attribute of who he is and also his assignment, what he does in your life and my life, he sanctifies us, makes us holy, sets us apart. But Holy Spirit. And that's why, you know, there's analogies or metaphors that are used in the New Testament. He's, he's like a dove, but he's not a dove. He's like fire, but he's not fire. He's like oil, but he's not oil. 
It's like the wind, that's why in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word is ruach. In the New Testament, it's pneuma, breath or wind, spirit is the translation. It's hard to wrap your arms around it. Yet I love that God placed an analogy on the earth for all of us. It's odorless and colorless, and you're dependent on it every day. Air, oxygen, envelops your life. And that's the meaning of the word to be overshadowed. It means literally to surround, encircle, envelop. Overshadowed. Now you might say, well, how does that application to me? I want to pose it to you in a form of a question. What's surrounding your life? What or who is surrounding your life? Because hear me now, please, don't wander off. This is one of the most important areas of this message because this is where the rubber hits the road. This is where you connect. This is your takeaway. You've got to answer that question. I know it's a rhetorical question. I'm not asking you to respond publicly, but privately in the chambers of your own heart, Reflect on it deeply, young or old, close distant, doesn't matter. I'm asking everyone in here to ask yourself the question, what surrounds your life? Reflect on that. What really surrounds your life? Because whatever surrounds your life controls your life, the very direction of your life. So let me supply a few fill-in-the-blanks. What kind of mindset do you wake up with each morning? The thoughts that visits you in the morning, revisit you in the afternoon, talk to you at night, and when you lay your head on the pillow, they're right there with you again. What is a mindset that you have? A way of thinking. Are they oppressive thoughts? Are they anxious thoughts? Are they fearful thoughts? Are they worrisome? Are they confused thoughts? What surrounds your mind? What surrounds your emotions, your feelings? Is there a center point of that area in your life? Anger? What kind of emotions envelop you, surround you, overshadow you, creating and forming a, a mood? So you got a mindset that might be foreign to God, a mood that's contrary to him where your, your emotions are mastering you instead of serving you. Or it could be other things, worldly things. What kind of music spirals around your head? What kind of entertainment surrounds your life? What kind of hobbies are you engaged in? What kind of friendships do you have? What's the nature of the conversations that spin and spiral around your mind, around your heart, around your life? They encircle you. They engulf you. They encompass you. They overshadow you. Has it become the footing for worldliness, ungodliness, the anger, the confusion, the perplexity, the anxiety, the fear, the lust, the lust, the greed, a materialistic spirit, an inordinate preoccupation with stuff, 
Or is it jealousy or envy every time you think of that person? just spins around you over and over and over again, tormenting you. Or it could be you're fully surrounded by the presence of God, by the Holy Spirit. You breathe him in 24-7. I hope that the desire within you is to say, Lord, I want to hear something I've never heard before, and I want to be able to receive that by the voice of the Holy Spirit, by the word of God. I want that which surrounds my life, not a fear of death and dying or this disease, not the fear, the torment that my divorce is going to move through an exit door. I, I, I just, I, I want to be able to say, Lord, surround my mind, surround my emotions, surround my soul and my spirit, my whole being with the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know it sounds ethereal, conceptual, abstract, mystical, but it's as real as who he is. The Holy Spirit is here and desires more than the air that you breathe to surround you, to engulf you, to encompass you, to encircle you, to cause you to move about. I'll tell you what I get visited with almost every morning. Problems. My mind gets invaded with a whirlwind. I feel like I'm in the vortex of a tornado of problem, this problem, that problem, this one, that one, because you interrelate with so many people's lives and they bring in their problems to you by the bucketful. And then you've got your own problems and it's like, oh God. And so, you know, I have to be tenacious. This doesn't just happen weekly or monthly or it's a slight little decision now. No, you've got to say it every day. This day, overshadow me, Holy Spirit of God. Overshadow me. I don't want my life to be defined by a whirlwind of problems orbiting around my head and my heart, my whole being. Now, are they there? Sure they are. I don't deny or suppress that reality, but I want to appeal to a higher reality that God is with me and he envelops me, he surrounds me, he overshadows me. The Holy Spirit of God. You don't want to live a life where you're tormented by all that anxiety and fear and depression and discouragement and confusion and perplexity or the lust or the greed or the pride. You want to say, no, I want my mind and my soul, my whole being to be enveloped and overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Amen? What did Mary do then in order to experiencing that, experience that? It's recorded in Luke chapter 1 and verse 38. I am the Lord's servant. Listen, when you say, I'm the Lord's servant, you won't be a slave to anything else. You won't be a slave to your appetite, be it physical or demonic. You won't be a slave to people to promote yourself to them or prove yourself to them or sell yourself to them or please them or perform for them. You won't be a slave to that temptation, that sin, that addiction, when you say, I'm a servant of the Lord. When you really in your heart say, I'm a servant of the Lord, God owns me, you won't be a slave to anything. I'm a servant of the Lord, may your word be to me fulfilled. May it be fulfilled in my life. Now here, this, this is the doing 
now of Mary. It's a bit different than when we looked at Noah and Moses and Joshua. The doing for Mary could appear passive, but it involves one of the most important innate aspects of biblical faith. It's the word trust. She expressed her trust two ways, through her surrender and her submission. When she says, I'm the Lord's servant, may your word to me be fulfilled. What was to Mary to do? Nothing. There was no action part of this. That's the believing arm of faith. This was the trusting arm of faith. And it involved surrender, lifting both hands and saying, I give up. I give up. I give up. Extremely important. Now, if you stop there, your will is not engaged. See, your will has given up. There's no longer the clash, the fight between you and God. You've decided to surrender. I'm wrestling with this. I'm battling with this. This is surrounding my life, but I don't want it anymore. I'm your servant. I surrender, okay? I give up. Then the next thing that has to be married to surrender is what the Bible teaches us is biblical submission. That's expressed probably best by the bowing of the knee. In the study of the, the ancient church, it slowly moved in the direction of bowing the knee as an expression of saying, I'm broken before you. I want my will to be wrapped around yours. Now some people, you know, might just do it religiously. But this was an act of submission saying, God, I'm broken. I don't move. I don't walk. The bending of my knees means I've, I've put my feet behind me, not in front of me. And I'm saying to you, Lord, I wrap my will now around yours. You surrender, I give up. Basically, your will is in neutral. Now you engage it with submission saying, Lord, I wrap my will around yours. Now pray that I can get up. <laughs> okay. So what is Mary experiencing? Well, the Holy Spirit is overshadowing her. The Holy Spirit then begins to do what? Form the Christ child. It doesn't mean that this is the beginning point for Jesus. That would be theologically incorrect. Jesus, the Christ, co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's not the debated issue here. The reality is that's why they'll say the only begotten, not to infer that he was suddenly created right then, always existed. It's a mystery. This is one of those things that you can proclaim, you can't explain. You can declare it, but you can't really articulate it any further than that, to say that God begins to be formed the Father, the Jesus, fully human, fully God. And the scripture that's very interesting that I believe becomes applicable to us is found in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. For whom I labor in birth until Christ is formed in you. That's the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, basically giving a description of how there's an image or a similarity to what happened to Mary and what's intended to happen to you and to me. That in our life, 
We hear something we've never heard before. God begins to speak to us. And a deeper issue of trust and surrender and submission to him is God begins to form Christ in, in the chambers of your heart and your life. His character is developed on the inside of you. The way I look at that is there is a saving call that descends over the ears of every human on the earth. That saving call is basically this, an invitation, come to Jesus. If you're here, if someone is watching online, if you've never come to Jesus, may you hear that in my voice right now. Because Jesus didn't bring a religion, he brought himself, and he wants you to have a personal relationship with him. But then, there's not just the saving call, there's the sacred call, and that's the invitation from God to say, be like Jesus. Be like him. Let Christ be formed in you, for whom I labor and birth until Christ is formed in you, Christ's character being formed and developed on the inside of you. That's that sacred call. And then the special call is the uniqueness of the gifts, the talents, and abilities that he's put on your life to reveal him to the world, because we all do it differently. With a different personality, a different occupation, career, a different set of gifts and skills and abilities, that's that special call in your life, revealing him. Saving call, let's all respond, come to Christ. Sacred call, I want to be like him. So my witness verbally is authentic because my life witness on the inside is real and genuine. I've been conformed to the image of Christ. And then I want to reveal him to the world. I want to reveal him with all my heart to others. And that's that special call in your life and my life. Here's the beauty, though, of the forming of Christ on the inside of you and me. This takes the pressure off, but it increases the acceleration of surrender and submission. He does that work in you. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, be perfect even as I'm perfect. Now, at first, that can seem so intimidating. Be perfect, but the, the word actually means to be made complete or be, to be made whole. God's intention is to make you whole as he develops holiness. Now, he's holy, set apart, and that means we esteem him as almighty God, sacred. But there's an aspect of holiness that involves being made whole, being made complete. It's captured in that verse, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, to be made perfect, to be made complete, to be made whole. See, if you don't know, listen, listen here. K-N-O-W, if you don't know why God says no in a certain area of your life, it'll be the breeding ground for legalism. It's got to come in the milieu or the environment of relationship. So when you hear God say no, you need to know why. And you know why? You need to know why he says no because his intent is ready to make you whole. He wants to make you complete. Because the very opposite of that is think of what sin has done in your life and mine. It splits you, separates you, fragments you. Jealousy, pride, lust, envy, bigotry, materialism, it splits you apart. You spin into a myriad of different directions. But God makes you whole and he forms Christ on the inside of you. That is his call in your life and my life. So what was Mary able to see then in this process? Well, the scripture says in Luke 2 and verse 7, she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. 
She heard something she had never heard before. What was the doing part? She just had to yield and surrender and submit. Let me, let me ask you, any, any woman in here where when you, during the gestation process of your pregnancy, did you ever have to do this? I never saw Diane do this when she was pregnant with, with uh, Stephanie and Stephen. I never stopped and heard her go, oh, wait, 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 Gary, wait, 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 I'm in the middle of developing Stephanie's eyes right now. Okay, there's a lot of intricacies built here. I'm working a little bit on her circulatory system, her digestive system, and I'm going to navigate into her nervous system right now. Just bear with me. She never did that. Yet all the complexity of what was being formed in her womb was authored by Almighty God. All she had to do was just yield her womb. You follow me? She just had to yield, surrender her womb. Make sure that she drank and ate healthy. Yeah, of course. But she didn't have to form the eyes and the ears and the brain. God did that. She could have been, she is brilliant, or she could have been very uneducated. Doesn't matter. It's not contingent on her intelligence or how she would manage. God just did it. In the same way, let Christ be formed in you. By your hands? No, you're going to mess things up. Let the Holy Spirit surround you. Oh, too mystical. No, it is not. Jesus said, it's better that I go and send you the Holy Spirit so he can shape you and make you and fashion you and then empower you. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. If you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit... Now, you want to watch a phrase that's similar to what Mary experienced? The Holy Spirit has come upon you. Same phrase. Here to be a witness for Christ, to reveal him to others. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, enveloped you, surrounded you, overshadowed you, so you can bear Jesus to others, surrounded by the indwelt presence of the Holy Spirit. Christ formed on the inside so that he will manifest through you on the outside. The Lord, I believe, wants to speak to you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I know I shared it a little bit longer, but goodness, I'm thinking of each Sunday I got left. <laughs> I am. And I want to make sure I give you everything I can from my heart, from his heart, not mine, but his heart. God has placed that call on us. We want to hear his voice. We want to hear something we've never heard before, to do something we've never done before, to see something we've never seen before. I hope you can think of it in the context of not only your life and a miracle happening, but evangelism. Evangelism like you see with Mary. She surrendered, she submitted, Christ was formed, and then Christ was revealed. And it wasn't just for her, He's the savior of the world, the savior of the world. And I can't help but think of someone like the Apostle Paul. I've been meditating a lot about the reality of the judgment of God. And yes, do I believe in the reality of the promise of Holy Scripture in eschatology of the rapture? Absolutely. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 speaks about the rapture of the church when we would be caught up when it happens, I'll be honest with you, 
It's a debated issue. I have studied eschatology probably for 35 years, probably read more books than you have on that topic and studied and exegeted the test of the Bible regarding this. And it's kind of the, one of those that you understand from Matthew 24, the issue that, you know, we don't know the day or the hour. We can get a general sense of the season. We know the mounting waves that are occurring, no question. The reality of the rapture, I think, is imminent. We're not sure, though, when. You could be mid-trip, post-trip, pre-trip, amillennial, premillennial, post-millennial. There's all different debated issues. I get it. I understand it. That doesn't cause me to hold back. I'm not going to violate what is said in 1 Peter that Christ is coming. There's the rapture of the church and the second coming. But there's something about the importance of even more than understanding eschatology and his second coming. I want to make sure I respect his first coming and his assignment over my life in the Great Commission to share my faith with others. Because I want to be ready, yeah, to die today. You know, the end of the world could be today for you. It could. I don't care what your eschatology is. Today could be the end of your world, the end of your life. You don't, you don't know. I don't know. So we don't know when our life is going to be taken from the earth, and we don't know exactly when that rapture is going to happen, even though it's biblical and sound and it's taught, it's there. And the second coming of Christ, we, we, we don't know but we, we need to be ready to die and ready for the rapture. But I want to be prepared to live. Like my brothers and sisters that are suffering persecution. Sure, they wish, wow, may that rapture come. The second coming happen right now. But the intensity of what they're navigating through, and we might as well. There's going to be increased waves that are going to descend over us. You're going to feel the rejection, the ridicule, the mockery. And it might become even more intense. And the exit of the rapture may not happen just yet, but you need to be prepared to live strong and faithful for God, even in the midst of persecution. <laughs> to be obedient to Him and to follow Him, to be yielded to Him, and allow the Holy Spirit to capture you, to bring light where there's darkness. Think of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. You talk about someone in the New Testament that understood judgment and the reality of hell. The reality of hell is an isolated place, alienated, completely distant from any interpersonal relationships. Could you imagine the torment? Not just for days or weeks or months, but into eternity. Just that alone. Forget about the fire. Forget about the torment. Just being isolated and alone with no hope. It's overwhelming when you consider that reality. John McCain, Senator John McCain said when he was a prisoner of war there in Vietnam for six years, he wrote in his, in his writings, he, he said, listen, one of the most intense areas that I almost thought I was going to go insane when I was completely isolated and alone in that prison, not just for hours or weeks, but months on end. To be completely alone. That's, that's a reality that the Apostle Paul in the New Testament teaches about, about hell. To be isolated, alienated, completely alone. And then the torment and the darkness forever and ever and ever. Do we really believe that? It's taught. That's Orthodox Christianity. And the Apostle Paul will say in Romans 9, listen to this statement. He goes, I'm saying this to you with my full conscience and with the presence of the Lord and the Holy Spirit. In other words, what I'm about to say to you, I really mean. He says, I would to be accursed. 
I would to be cast into hell so that my brethren, the Jews, might be saved. Can you imagine the passion and the intensity of that commitment to reveal Christ to the Jewish community and to the world? I'm going to invite you to stand and I'm going to ask you to say, Lord, I want your Holy Spirit to overshadow me, yes, to remove the anxiety and the fear and the confusion and the the various areas of addiction and sin. But more than that, I want the Holy Spirit to overshadow me for me to hear something I've never heard, to do something I've never done, to see something I've never seen, that you would begin to use me in such a strong way to reach to the lost, to the dying, to those that are in darkness, to those that are about to go to hell. And that we would step on our opinions and we would step on our fears and we would step on other people's preferences. I'll never forget this. Many years ago, I had a word of knowledge in the midst of a service just like this. And I said, oh my, I'm getting this from the Lord that there's a young man in this service and you only have two weeks to live. Only two weeks to live. I don't know what's going to befall you, but you only have two weeks to live. And there's nothing I feel that can be done about it. If you're not right with God, young man, I don't know who you are, but you're here. You got to get right with God. You got to get right with God. Now, I didn't know fully what happened. I know that week I got some nasty emails saying, how dare you be so manipulative? That was offensive that you would actually say that publicly. It was so depressing to hear you do that, Pastor. I'm embarrassed. Until I heard later that a young man came to the altar. He gave his life to Jesus. He went up to a restroom. And there was someone that went in there and he started saying, I gave my life to Jesus. I got a little concerned when that pastor said, I don't know if it's me or whoever it is, but I'm, I'm a young man and I knew I wasn't right with him and I've given my life to Jesus. Two weeks later, he was in a severe car accident and a few weeks after that he died. And you know, at that moment, I said to the Lord, I don't care what email I ever get. I don't care about any email that I ever get about anyone's opinion. I'm not going to let it crush my obedience to God. There are souls that are dying and they're going to hell. And there's a whole lot of people that have a lot of opinions to stop you. You push them aside. You crush them. You'll be surrounded with the boldness and the courage and the wisdom and the anointing of the Holy Spirit of Almighty God. So that you do what God calls you to do without fear and without intimidation. Amen. Now let's lift this song to our Lord. And I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to let a clock start spinning around my head. Forget it. You're going to eat a little bit later. Let's lift this and say, Lord, we want to be surrounded by the Holy Spirit of God. We're tired of being tormented. We're tired of being paralyzed by this society, by our own voice. We want to hear you, Lord, that we have never heard before. Do what we've never done before. To see what we've never seen before. A mighty revival. Souls coming to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. Come on, lift your heart, lift your hands. I don't care 
where you're at. I don't care what your personality is. Just say, God, surround me, surround me, surround me. Impact my thought life. Impact where I'm at. Remove the fear. Remove the discouragement. Remove the depression. Remove the lust. Remove the anger. Remove the lies. Remove the opinions and intimidation. I want to be full and moved by the Spirit of the living God.